0: Welcome to Negotiating Brexit, the Views from the Member States podcast. This is a series for anyone interested in Brexit and the UK's future relations with its European neighbours. We look at viewpoints that are not always well known in the UK. I'm Hussein Kassim, Professor of Politics at the University of East Anglia and a Senior Fellow of the UK in a Changing Europe.
1: And I'm Cleo Davis, Senior Research Associate at UEA.
0: Today we're looking at France and Brexit. We're delighted to be joined by Professor Christian Lequen and Professor Pauline Schnapper. Christian Lucan is Professor of European Politics at Sciences Po Paris, where he's Director of CERI, the Centre for International Study and Research. He holds degrees from Sciences Po Strasbourg and the College of of Europe in Bruges and a PhD and Habilitation from from Sciences Po Paris. Christian has held um, visiting positions at the College of Europe, the LSE, the University of Cologne and Charles University in Prague. Christian sits on the board of several journals and he's published widely on France and the EU. Pauline Schnapper is Professor of British Studies at the University of La Sorbonne Nouvelle, Paris Three, and a member of the Institute, um, Université de France. She holds degrees from École Normale Supérieure at Fontenay, Paris University Three, and Sciences Po Paris, where she completed her PhD. Pauline was awarded her Habilitation at Sorbonne Nouvelle. She's published widely on British politics, British foreign policy, and on the UK's relationship with Europe. Both have followed Brexit closely.
1: So I'll kick off with the first question. The UK imagines that national capitals have been as preoccupied by Brexit as the UK. How much attention has Brexit commanded in French political circles, for instance, or the French media and public opinion? Well, I would say it's changed over time. Um, At the
2: moment, to be honest, not much interest uh, for obvious reasons. We have many other things on our plates at the moment, whether domestically or at the EU level. And there isn't that much uh, going on in the media about Brexit, but at different stages in the lengthy process that we've had since 2016, um, and in particular the different deadline moments uh, for the you know, agreements, uh, Brexit day or last uh, uh, on the first of February last year, uh, November 2019 at the time of the, uh, the second agreement. Uh, a year before that, 2018, when there was the May agreement, in those times, there was a lot, actually, of interest uh, in the media. I mean, both Christian and I were invited many times uh, on French radio and TV, and we gave many interviews in newspapers mm-hmm. as well. And we've had that experience, I think, both of us, when we talk to, when we give lectures or or uh, take part in debates about the UK and Brexit, uh, we've really encountered a lot of uh, of interest uh for what was going on and why why was britain leaving and what effect it would have on on
1: the eu etc christian would you like to add something
3: i i, I totally agree and i was sometimes struck by uh, uh questions i uh, i got uh, in um, well uh, conferences with the with a broader public right so uh uh, questions were coming from uh, well ordinary citizens, uh, and probably with some difference also uh, in the in the regions. In Brittany, for instance, it was quite uh, quite high because of uh, a certain number of interest, uh, fishing interest, for instance, right? And uh, but uh, in general, uh, um, yes, um, there were some interest from the from the from the public.
1: Thank you. When the UK referendum took place, some in the UK and elsewhere anticipated a domino effect across Europe. Was there any evidence that Brexit had an impact or resonance in domestic politics in France or on the positioning or discourse of France's political parties?
3: Well, uh, yes, we can say that. Uh, if, you, if you take, for instance, Macron, who uh, uh, well arrived at power in 2017 with this very... Uh, uh, well, uh, proactive uh, uh, EU politics. Well, he, he, he used Brexit uh, many times to say, well, uh, um, we have to do the opposite of that, uh, more integration, uh, um, and uh, we don't want to uh, support this integration. Um, the far right was tempted uh, during the presidential election to uh, use it in the other way, uh, saying, well, this is maybe what... uh, we have to think about uh, also leaving the, the the EU. Well, in fact, Le Pen, M- Madame Le Pen, started with a discourse on leaving the EU. Then it becomes uh, a discourse on leaving the euro. And at the end, nothing more, because she realized that it was not an argument uh, very successful to the electorate. So um, uh, even among the uh, far-right electorate, very eurosceptic, uh, nobody is prepared to uh, well to uh, accept the idea that france is leaving the eu so they just abandoned. and if you take the uh, discourse of uh, of the far right now what they're saying is we have to change europe but we have to change europe from inside
2: it, it was it was interesting to see that the, the the domino effect that was feared in the end worked the other way around the fact that the brexit negotiations went on for so long were so difficult uh, the, the whole chaos in, in the UK that, that we witnessed from the continent was act, actually helped uh, the, the Europeans to realise the, the benefits of the EU, I think, rather than the other way around. And that was a surprise.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting development. Uh, how has the perception of the UK and Brexit in France evolved and developed, starting with Cameron's decision to call an in-out referendum, the new settlement and then the subsequent negotiations? Well, I, I would say that, again,
2: things have, have evolved over the years. At first, there was a, there was a lot of bewilderment. Uh, why should the UK leave? Why did Cameron call for a referendum in the context of 2016, uh, shortly after the, the, the economic recession, uh, in the middle of a refugee crisis in the Mediterranean, et cetera. I mean, the context seemed really not a, a, a good time uh, to do this. Uh, and, and certainly in the political class in general, there was uh, uh, great fear and, and yeah worry about, uh, about the, the, the referendum result. Uh, and at first, if you remember 2016 and 17, Uh, France, like the other countries, uh, was saying things like, well, if you change your mind, of course, we'd be happy for you to stay and and that kind of thing. Um, I think once Article 50 was activated in February uh, 2017, perceptions started to change. And uh, the the, the mood, certainly in the French circle, political circles in general and, and government, was rather, well, now they've chosen... Uh, they want to go. It's not a good idea, but the electorate have chosen. The government has con- confirmed it. Now we want to get it out of the way as soon as possible. Um, and I think in the last three years, this has been the prevailing mood in, in the French government. Let's get this out of the way. It's taking way too much of our time and energy uh, in endless negotiations, which are then not turned into, uh, which are not ratified in, by the British Parliament or lead to a, a political crisis in the UK, we we now want to to move on. And I think that's the main idea in, in, in France now. But I don't know if Christian agrees with that.
3: No, absolutely. Uh, I, I think nobody among the political elites, I mean, the mainstream political elites, uh, um, wanted to have Brexit, right? We, we didn't have... Uh, a, a, a clear—we uh, cannot find a clear statement of uh, somebody uh, saying, "Well, it's a good idea, etc." Not at all, because of the interest, right? UK. Uh, and France, they have also a lot of interest in in sectors like uh, defense, security, etc. But uh, when it was decided, uh, it's it's absolutely true the uh, discourse changed and say, well, it's a British decision, and uh, we have to uh, we have to accept it, and uh, we have to make it uh, as quick as possible, um, which was not the case. So uh, probably among the political class, uh, there were a lot of. Con- Concerns uh, when we had this ping pong match, you know, between the uh, House of Commons and, 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 ma- and, and Mrs. Uh, um, uh, Theresa May. Uh, this was a bit uh, difficult to accept because we lost time, etc. But for the rest. The general idea is, well, let's let's make it and be sure that we have a good agreement at the end.
0: I just wondered if you could say something about, um, if you had any thoughts about the, the way in which um, the UK's contribution to the EU had developed or worked over time. Um, what was the perception of what the UK contributed to the EU, what, what UK membership of the EU meant for um, the EU and for other member states?
3: That, that's an interesting question because this is... Uh, um, a question on which you have probably uh, um, a difference in the perceptions between elites, uh, political elites, experts on one side and public opinion on the other side. Um, for for uh, political elites, uh, when you're talking about the UK, the, the, the first thing that comes in the debate is foreign policy it's 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 an important partner. Security and defence. Well, it's the only real partner we have, and uh, it's a pity that they uh, that they leave. When you speak to public opinion, it's a different perception. They immediately see liberalism. Uh, I mean, uh, this idea of having uh, a market rather than a political union. Enlargement is perceived uh, also, or the support uh, of the UK to enlargement is also. Uh, um, seen as a well a, a manifestation of this liberal view it is among the public opinion that you have sometimes the the most negative uh, uh perceptions because uh, french uh, has a problem with uh, with liberalism right and they they they, they identify the uk uh, as the uh, well the main uh, actor inside the uh, the EU pushing for uh, for liberalism so uh,
0: that's something striking that's very curious to hear for a british audience because the the perception in the UK of of um, the EU is that the EU is socialism through the back door that's what it that's what it means that's how prime to thatch characterized it
3: yeah you know when when I'm, i i i had conversations with uh, well, ordinary citizens in the, uh, broader public uh, uh, conferences, I always insisted on the contribution of the EU to the single market. But I was not very convincing when I was saying that to the to the to the French public. Right? Uh, yeah, single market. What does it mean? The EU has to be only a single market. No, it has to be more than that, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So. Moving to think about the negotiations, uh, many observers have been surprised by the degree of unity on the EU side, particularly during the negotiations on the future relationship, because it was believed that here economic self-interest would come to the fore, that that would drive member state positions, and it would be very, rather difficult to sustain a united front. Why didn't that happen, in your view?
2: Yes, I think this question of the unity of the uh, of the EU has been this a central point, which was underestimated by the British government throughout the negotiations. And yet, if they had thought hard about this issue, which I'm not sure they did, um, they would have realized that the unity of the EU 27 especially in the context that we talked about just earlier, of external crisis and pressure from the far right inside, domestic, uh, at different domestic levels, uh, that this unity would be absolutely crucial to prevent the risk of disintegration that many countries fear, uh, And also, I think the, the, the UK government underestimated the importance of the single market and the integrity of the single market, to use the, uh, the phrase that was uh, often used at that time, uh, for all member states. Uh, and the idea that, for, for instance, Germany... Uh, German industry would lobby their own government to be nicer to, to the UK, um, that this was an illusion because for German industry, the single market with 26 other uh, countries is more important than their British market. Uh, and that, I think, is something that uh, that was very important and more became more important, turned out to be more important than... Uh, everybody uh, would have thought. So even uh, traditional allies of the UK, uh, so I'm not talking about France here, but uh, I mentioned Germany, but also East European countries, for instance, or the Netherlands, um, shared the sense that uh, the EU needed to be unified. And it worked also for Ireland. Uh, A small country like Ireland uh, was more protected by the rest of the EU, then I guess the the, the British government had uh, anticipated for that same reason.
0: Um, observers have been surprised by the degree of um, unity on the EU side, and um, particularly with respect to the support of Ireland. I wondered if, if if that surprised you also.
2: And well, similarly, I think the the uh, the question uh, is if you're in or if you're out. Uh, the all the other member states also wanted to send a signal that if you are. In the EU, you are protected by the sort of collective will, whereas if you leave, you're on your own. Uh, so it was a message to to Ireland, but it was also a message to London. I think. Well,
3: I I, I think the reason for that, uh, as it has been explained, is the question of the integrity of the of the single market. Well, this is this is really a, 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 an issue on which. Uh, 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 Well, the big member states, I'm I'm thinking first uh, uh, Germany and France, but also all the other member states do not want to have uh, exception. It was uh, probably uh, um, a mistake uh, from uh, from the British uh, uh, side wanting to have right at the beginning, well, a sort of special status inside uh, the single market. That was not at all acceptable and by nobody. Look at uh, countries uh, which politically were very close uh, from uh, uh, the UK. I'm thinking about the Netherlands, um, Czech Republic. Uh, even Poland, for political reasons. Uh, well, when we came to the subject of uh, <laughs> uh, single market, they were absolutely mainstream, right? So um, that's that's the main expi- that's the main explanation, and uh, it's an answer to your question on uh, on, on, on Northern Ireland. Uh, it was it was linked to this idea of integrity of the uh, of the single market, I guess.
0: So France and the UK haven't always seen eye to eye on European issues. And um, you know, despite the areas of cooperation that you identified earlier, I wondered if that had played a role in, in your view for how France approached Brexit in in the negotiations. And, you know, in particular, um, France has been portrayed as um, the bad cop as, com- as compared to Germany's good cop. Um, do you see any truth in that characterization?
2: I don't. I don't think that that is true. Uh, there are obviously, historically, there were differences and there still are differences in the way the French and the British governments uh, saw the developments of, of European integration. But I don't think that has uh, played a role in, in this negotiation Again, France was sorry to see uh, Britain leave, and that, that I think is a very important point. And also, I don't think there was really a difference between the F- French and German views. There certainly was a difference in style between Macron and, and yes, there still is, between Macron and Merkel, that, that certainly uh, Macron put things more forcefully, he was, was tougher in, in, in rhetoric, uh, whereas Merkel was more accommodating, again, in rhetoric. But when the, when it comes to the bottom line, it was absolutely shared and, and by the two. Uh, and at least all the people I've talked to on the French side have t- told me this. There was no difference in approach between the Germans and, and the French. They all wanted to protect the EU. That was their main priority. Since Brexit was going to happen, it had to be quick, and with as limited damage as possible. Um, and, and that was something that was, that was shared. So if a free trade could be found with the UK as soon as possible, that would be great, with an agreement, much better than without an agreement. Uh, but if it, if it cannot happen, well, it will not happen, and we will survive, and we will survive better than the British. Um, I think um, that there was really it, it was very much played on in in the British media, but I I don't think it's it's based on, on
0: truth. Christian, do you do you share that view?
3: I I totally share that view. Even if at the beginning of the process, uh, I remember uh, very well having interviews with officials uh, at the Quai d'Orsay and elsewhere. Who had some fears about the the, the possible German attitude, right? Uh, because of the of the solidarity, uh, well, natural solidarity on on the single market issues between uh, between both uh, countries, uh, UK and Germany. But quickly, quickly they realized that. Uh, uh, this will not uh, uh, happen, and uh, and also because uh, uh, the two tops of the well, I mean the two the two top heads, the uh, uh, German Chancellor and the and the French President, make sure to be on the same line, um, and that 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 was the the, the rule of conduct uh, during uh, the rest of the negotiation.
0: And that was true because, um, but. Um there was continuity then between the two French presidents, and and, and Merkel um, was how warm and close were the relationships between Hollande and Merkel and um, Macron and Merkel.
3: Not well. It it makes a difference uh, because uh, uh, the French became, in general, with Macron, more proactive uh, and uh, wanted to have a support of Germany right at the beginning of the Macron's presidency. On the reform of the of the EU, you remember the uh, uh, famous uh, Sorbonne speech of September 2017, and uh, there were some disappointment in Paris because m- Mrs Merkel what took time to to reply. Uh, but on Brexit, really, I don't think so. Uh, it uh, it didn't make a difference. The uh, the shift uh, uh, from uh, from Hollande to uh, to Macron position remained the same.
0: France has very particular interest when it comes to the relationship with the UK. I mean, Fish is particularly prominent, but it's also a close neighbour on the front line, and it will be um, quite severely affected by changes in transport and and, and border control. I wondered how those concerns have affected France's approach to the negotiations.
2: Um, My experience talking to, to French officials in the last few months uh, was that they are trying to separate what is part of a bilateral relationship, especially issues about border security, ports, etc., from the EU negotiation. Uh, some of it is not possible. I mean, obviously, fisheries uh, is part of the Brexit negotiation. It's not, it's not bilateral, and, and it's, it's a big issue uh, not for France in general, but certainly for some sectors, for some locations. Uh, Christian was mentioning Brittany uh, earlier, but the whole, uh, obviously, coast uh, uh, is heavily impacted by this. And, and fishermen, although very few in numbers, uh, have a political lobbying weight. Um, so they're important politically. Uh, But otherwise, I think uh, the the, the French government is very keen to continue to talk directly to the British government about uh, issues such as uh, security of the the tunnel, immigration, obviously, um, exchange of data, uh, intelligence about uh, migration issues, etc., anti-terrorism. So they are trying, uh, to some extent, to, to, to separate the, the, the two issues, and they're very aware that whatever happens in the coming days, uh, from the 1st of January, there will have to be close cooperation on, on all these issues. So, they were, certainly on the French side, they're working on it.
3: Well, I, I do agree that there is a, a, a special point in, the, in this country about, uh, about fishery, uh first of all, because this is an exclusive competence of the of the EU. so it's difficult to deal with it on a bilateral basis as it has been said by uh, uh, Pauline. We have uh, also um, it's a very small sector as it is in the in the, in the UK. so it's more than one percent of the of the GDP, the fishing sector. but it's very localized. And uh, um, there's two, two concerns. First of all, there's a problem of access, of course, but access could have also implication for, for French waters because uh, uh, there are actually uh, eight uh, uh, member states of the EU uh, which are fishing in the British waters. So if they don't fish anymore in the british waters it means that they could fish more in the french waters right so this this is one concern and the second uh, concern the uk is uh, uh, selling a lot of uh, fresh products uh, to france to be transformed and uh, you have a certain number of uh, um, well industry uh, in boulogne for instance they are very dependent from uh, from the British products, fresh product. So um, if, if it becomes more difficult in terms of trading also, because uh, that could be the natural uh, uh, response to uh, uh, the question of access. You limit the access, we limit the market. Well, that could have uh, implications also on uh, on this uh, um, um fishing uh, uh, industry uh, uh, processing uh, transforming fish so it's um it's a relatively sensitive issue uh, and and of course it's also an issue on which uh, um I would say the advantage is uh, in, in in the Brit- in the in the British side, right? It's on the British side uh, because uh, uh, we fish more uh, in the British waters than uh, than than the opposite. So um, uh, it's exactly for these reasons also that uh, the British delegation decided to uh, wait for the very end to decide on that.
0: One of the issues we haven't touched upon so far is um, the number of French citizens resident in the UK and the number of UK citizens in, in France. I wondered if that has been if that has weighed heavily on the minds of um, the French government in thinking about the, the EU position. Well, regarding
3: the, uh, the French citizens uh, uh, living in the UK, um, probably around uh, 600,000, uh, among them 300,000 in London. Uh, of course, there were a lot of concern um, because uh, now you will have to ask for residency and you'll need a, 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 a permit. But what is interesting is that the, 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 action, the actions of the, of, the, of the French community uh, went through a broader European action. So, uh, if you if you see the uh, association, for instance, there is one association called the, the leader Nicolas Atton is 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 a, a Frenchman, but uh, it's called the Three Million. So, it's a three million EU citizens living uh, in living in the in the UK, um, and in this association, you have all the EU uh, 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 citizens represented. So, they try to lobby the parliament, the executive, etc., uh, uh, etc., cetera, et cetera. regarding the. The British citizens living in France, probably around 250,000. thousands. There is no particular tension, and uh, um, what has uh, changed is the the uh, uh, demands for um, citizenship acceler- very accelerated. So uh, you have uh, you have a lot of. Uh, British citizens living in France who ask now for a French passport, and uh, I don't think uh, they will have problems to to get those
0: passports. A slightly different um, question here. It's been argued that the task force was created to ensure that all member states had a chance to raise their concerns, and in particular to avoid a stitch-up between Berlin and Paris. I wondered if you shared that view, and how has the task force and the role played by Michel Barnier been perceived in France? Um, and I also I also wondered in, if if I can connect these questions um, um, in the UK. There's a sort of perception that the EU is very bureaucratic in taking um, in, in adopting its position and therefore inflexible. I wondered if if you had any views on that.
2: My vision is that uh, Barnier is very popular uh, and and trusted, uh, not just because he's French, uh, but because he has worked very closely with all member states. Um, that may mean yes, a little bit of inflexibility in the sense that he has a very clear mandate, which was agreed on as early as, as February 2017, and which hasn't really changed. But that was probably inevitable uh, from the EU point of view because otherwise, I mean, uh, clearly the idea was was not to let the UK try to to to. Uh, Trade one country off with another one, so there, there was this need for unity.
3: What I can add is that Barnier is definitely not a bureaucrat; he's a politician <laughs> and a real politician, and uh, he 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 knows how the EU works. Right? He, uh, he he has been socialized for many years to EU negotiations, so he um, he knows what is his margin of autonomy uh, uh, vis-à-vis the member states. So. Um, uh, he, uh, of course, is he's, uh, he's moving, is, uh, but he will never do anything uh, without without uh, having uh, uh, the uh, agreement of uh, of the capitals and uh, uh, and especially of the big capitals because he is very trusted uh, uh, in Berlin as he is in Paris. Uh, but he has very good contacts everywhere right he's really a European politician and and it's it's rare because we do not have so many people like this so um, he, he is somebody who I think is doing a very good job it's difficult to see a, a, a failure or a, a, a discourse in which he said something which was inappropriate to a certain extent right is is uh, I think it's very professional.
1: You did mention something like 600,000 French residents in the UK. Uh, I, I had an idea that it was more around two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand, 300,000, but that seems like a huge amount.
3: There are 600,000 uh, uh, French residents probably in the UK. Why am I saying uh, probably because uh, those are... Uh, uh, estimations we uh, we don't have uh, uh, the same number uh, registered to the uh, uh, general consulate we have two general consulate one in uh, london and the there's one in in edinburgh but from uh, um, the statistics uh, um, uh, tax statistics uh, we uh, we can estimate 600 people 600,000 people among them 300,000 people living in london it's huge because 300,000s this is the size of a, of a f- french city like nantes or rouen it's it, it's it's this importance right and uh, this is a, a a process which started in the in the in the middle of the of the 90s, um, and if you take a sociology of the French community uh, uh, in uh, in London, you have a different kind of people. You have uh, uh, different groups. Uh, you have very high qualified people uh, working in the city or in the medical sector. Uh, you have some people who decided to create small and medium-sized enterprises because the corporate taxes are... Less expensive in the UK than in France. And you have this huge, huge number of young people who are doing all kinds of jobs in bars, uh, uh, restaurants, uh, etc., etc. But at the end, it's it's 300,000 people living in London. So, if you go to South Kensington, for instance, you will. Uh, you, I have heard that some British uh, 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 call it the Frog Valley. I don't know if it's true, but you, 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 you will hear. You will hear a lot of French in the streets, right?
1: Thank you, thank you very much for that. That was that was really interesting. The Frog Valley. I like that. Yeah, Kensington is definitely a French-speaking area. How ready is France generally for the end of the UK transition period and the possibility of a no deal? I mean, for instance, what will change for France in terms of the management of Eurotunnel, Putin touched upon it, but within the context of bilateral negotiations? But this is really in terms of the end of the transition uh, and the possibility of a no deal. What will change for France in terms of management of the Eurotunnel and border controls at ports and rail terminals?
3: Well, if if we have an ordeal, then uh, we will be obliged to organize uh, a certain number of very concrete things through uh, bilateral accords, right? Uh, uh, Eurostar, uh, problem of airplanes, uh, et cetera, et cetera, transport also. uh, So it's not impossible, of course. And I think the the degree of preparation – uh, on the French side, is not so bad because, uh, um, well, uh, during the political debates uh, uh, in the last uh, two years, uh, the no deal came as a possibility, and they tried to to, to prepare themselves in harbors, etc. Uh, I mean, the customs officers, etc., to to cope with that. So um, it's not impossible to uh, to organize the relationship with the UK in uh, in a no-deal uh, um, scenario. But of course, uh, uh, you'll have to sign all these agreements bilaterally, et cetera. So it will, again, it will take time. And uh, it will have a bureaucratic cost, right?
1: Thank you. Pauline, would you like to add something? Yeah, no, that's
2: absolutely true. Suddenly, the, the French officials uh, claim that they're ready. Uh, I don't know whether it's totally true or not, but they, they, they did claim that already last year. Um, also, we don't have the same sort of bottleneck problem that that Dover uh, represents for the UK. Uh, so in, in very you know, practical terms, it should be a little bit less difficult uh, for us to deal with the lorries queuing uh, at at harbors, etc., or or uh, for the tunnel. Uh, but still, this this obviously will have a huge cost. Uh, again, time, energy, and and money. Uh, on both sides. So uh, whatever happens, I would say, obviously it would be even worse if there's no deal. But uh, from what I understand, even with a a very simple deal, which is the only thing that's on the table at the moment, uh, there will be huge bureaucratic costs on both
1: sides. You both referred to the outcome of the US elections in relation to the uh, probability or not, or possibility around a deal or no deal, but more generally, how do you think that the uh, outcome of the U.S. elections will affect transatlantic relations?
3: Oh um, well, I I I, I think um, that of course the style of dialogue will be different because because Biden is not Trump, uh, um, so um, the time where the uh, uh, American presidents sent a very aggressive uh, tweets to comment what's going on in Europe is over uh, for four years because nobody knows what could happen in 2024, right? Uh, uh, Trump is over, but Trumpism is still there in the, uh, in the, uh, in the United States. But for the rest, I think conflict of interest will, will be still there as well uh, in trade uh, uh about the burden sharing for for nato for instance and um we will just go more diplomatically uh, when problems uh, uh, happen right uh, but um i i i think it would be an, a mistake to think that because we have Biden who said I am Irish uh, recently etc uh, the <laughs> United States will uh, now uh, be hands to hands with Europe no 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 not at all not at all I don't uh, I don't think so Obama was the first post-European president of the United States right uh, and and it will, uh, it will continue so uh, um, I, I saw uh, an interview from Mrs. Kram Karenbauer, the German Ministry of Defense uh, in Politico, beginning of uh, uh, November, where she said, well, you know, strategic autonomy for EU, for EU is, a, is, a, is a, 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 an illusion. So a very uh, classic Christian Democrat position. Uh, but behind that, uh, she also probably sought that uh, the Americans are prepared to be again, the policemen of the world, including Europe. I'm not sure that this is the tendency among the Democrat party in the United States and think it's a mistake. So um, um, that's it. And uh, for uh, UK, the implication will be, well, Biden will not have a special relationship so uh, if it's better to go to Berlin, he will go to Berlin. If on uh, terrorism, it's better to go to Paris, he will go to Paris, and, and etc. Cetera, et cetera.
1: Pauline, would you like to add something? Yeah,
2: no, I, I agree with that. I think there are a number of issues on which uh, the relationship will be much easier, uh, starting from issues such as climate, Iran, etc., and where there's no real difference between... Uh, Biden and his team, uh, the EU and the UK. There are other issues on which it will be as difficult as it was and what, what Christian just said. And uh, I think that there's clearly a challenge for for the UK because they, if, if they wanted... I mean, the, the, the whole myth or reality of being a bridge between uh, the EU and, and the US is not going to work once uh, Brexit is done there is something in the special relationship which will remain, which is the, the security-defense uh, cooperation with the US, which uh, will probably not not change. But what kind of role will Britain want to play with the EU on these issues it is one of the many questions that are still very much uh, up in the air. And I'm not sure the, the present government has really thought about this because so far there hasn't been any talk with the EU about defense. Uh, and that's... that's Something that certainly the EU and, and France will be waiting to see. Where does Britain go? Uh, does it in this triangle b- uh, with the US and, and and Europe?
3: May I just add one small point on that? On 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 foreign policy issues, I I, I think uh, the positions of London in the last uh, uh, five years were on many, many dossiers closer from the EU than from the US. Uh, if you take Iran, if you take Ukraine, uh, we can take a uh, series of example like, uh, like this. So um, for the French, it means that uh, they will try how to save the E3 dialogue on, on foreign policy issues and this is a, a particularly important for uh, the, the future of the negotiation on the on the nuclear deal if the us uh, decide to go back from well could could have different forms to the uh, gsa poa i mean the, uh, the, the the agreements on denuclearization e3 for paris is still is still a, an important issue and when paris is thinking about e3 uh, it's not with
0: Rome now, it's still
3: with London, right? And it's, uh, that's, an important, uh, that's an important point.
0: I've got, a, I've got a final question, if I may, and I'd also like to invite you again to sort of gaze into the crystal ball. And that's how, how will the bilateral relationship between France and the UK develop after Brexit from the 1st of January 2021?
2: That's a big, big question. I think a, a lot will depend on whether there is an agreement or not. Uh, if there's no agreement by definition, it means that it will end up badly in acrimony, in disputes with uh, everyone blaming the other for for the failure. And that means in, in practical terms that it will probably take a while before a good bilateral relationship can be reestablished. If there is a, an agreement, however thin, again, I think it would make things easier. Um, the, the priority on the French side will be this defense issue. They will be trying a, a twin-track strategy, I think, because on the one hand, they're trying to develop the EU as a proper defense actor, uh, uh, and, and Germany is finally sharing, at, at least <laughs> in rhetoric, this, this goal. So the, the French, I think, will try to de- really develop uh, uh, the defence dimension of the EU without uh, Britain. But on the other hand, they will be very keen, and I think it's probably true on the British side as well, to keep uh, the, uh, the, the the very successful cooperation that, that is now 10 years old, uh, which goes back to 20, 2010 and the, the Lancaster House agreements, uh, and which is to everybody's benefit. So... Um, there might be a, a, a bit of a contradiction between these two goals, uh, but the, probably the French government will, will try to, um, to continue this. And then there are these loads of sector-by-sector sector cooperation that will need to be rethought, and everything from citizens' rights, which we just talked about, to trade, of course, uh, business, uh, uh, police, corporation, everything, transport. In that, I don't think there's any sector which is not going to be to have to be reorganized post Brexit. Uh, and and this is something that the, the Kidox is is working on, and I, I guess the same is going on on the on the Foreign Office side. But again, I think they, whether there's an agreement or not will help everybody. Uh, to think about the future of the of the bilateral relationship. Otherwise, we might well waste months, if not more, before things get restarted.
0: Really well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Pauline and uh, Christian. That was that was excellent. Thank you. Thank you for listening to us. Thanks to our guests. Please join us for the next episode of Negotiating Brexit: Views from the Member States.